Welcome to another inspirational message from London Life Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. Does anyone know anything about entering the UK as an immigrant? Can you see a hand? Anyone? Anyone had to go through that? All right, all right, a couple of people. I'll tell you what, for the rest of you, who are privileged, who don't know what it's like, entering the UK is expensive and complicated. <laughs> I've, I've visited this country in, in different capacities. I've come here as a tourist. I've come as a, as a student. I've come as a spouse of a British national. My wife is there in the back row. She can wave, yeah. Um, and, and every time I applied for a visa, especially student visas or extensions to student visas or a family visa, every time I had to do this, I had to pay this thing called the IHS. Anyone know what the IHS is? There we go. The Immigration Health Surcharge. Oh, my days. It's, it's a fee. The idea is that it covers your potential medical expenses for the duration of your stay in the country. And it, it, may, it makes sense. It makes sense. The idea is that in case you become ill, you shouldn't be a burden to the National Health Service, the NHS, or to the noble taxpayers of this country. So, so it, it makes sense. It, it, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It's all fine and well. However, what they don't tell you hmm, is that when you actually come to this country and get employed and you start working, you end up still paying for the NHS through your regular taxes. And that the IHS does not get refunded to you, but you end up paying double. So like many other people who are in this situation, I am currently paying double for my health insurance. Don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. The NHS needs all the support they can get. And some countries don't even have a publicly funded health service. You know, our friends from across the pond, if you're watching, you have no idea how good this actually is, the system that we have. And I'm very grateful for the NHS, don't get me wrong. I'm just, I'm just telling all of you here, present and watching online who may be working for the NHS, God forbid, but if I ever become ill, I expect double treatment, twice the attention and twice the care because I've paid for it. Actually, never mind that. I actually just need you all to pray that I don't ever need the NHS. Amen? But the NHS is a wonderful, wonderful institution. They've done an incredible job during this pandemic. And, 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 and we look to them to successfully lead us out of this pandemic. And we need to also demand of our elected leaders to treat the NHS staff better than they do, to pay them more than they do. Amen? But I'm not here to preach about the NHS. I'm here to talk about the other NHS. In the gospel reading that we read, we find a story that is complicated and complex, much like the uh, British immigration process. It's a story that is full of complexities that perhaps raise more questions than, than they answer. First of all, it's Structurally, it's complicated. It's a story within a story. Uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark is famous for, for interrupting his stories, his narratives, with another story and then continuing with the original one. Uh, scholars call this the so-called Markan sandwich, where one story is sandwiched between the beginning and the end of another. And there are about nine such Markan sandwiches. 
So the story of the raising of the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue leader, is sandwiched, is interrupted by the story of the healing of the woman with hemorrhages, with the flowing of blood. And some argue that when the Gospel of Mark does this, it does it with a, with, with a particular intention. And that the intention is, it's actually an invitation for us to read and look at these two stories in light of each other, in light of one another. And, and when we actually do that in, the, in this particular sandwich, we begin to see many, many different levels and layers of connections between the two stories. First of all, one, one of the stories is that of a synagogue leader, Jairus. And as a leader of the synagogue, he, or the assembly, he definitely had he, some influence. He was an influential person in his community. He had some civic duties and responsibilities. Perhaps he also had some religious duties on top of that as well. Perhaps he was among the, the higher classes in his society in terms of wealth. He was definitely among the higher classes in terms of status as a leader. But in any case, what we can definitely say is that he is an active and easily recognized, recognizable member of his community. Everyone knows him by name. Everyone nods when he sees, sees him on the streets. On the other hand, we've got the woman who doesn't even have a name. The only thing that we know about her is her condition. The, the medical condition that she has defines completely and solely defines her, her identity. And some argue that because of her particular condition, the flowing of blood, that she was actually completely excluded from society. According to, to most interpretations of the law of Moses, surely that's what should have been done to her. Others, on the other hand, argue that the uh, so-called purity laws found in, within the law of Moses, or purity codes, that they were observed strictly the closer you get to Jerusalem and to the temple. And that maybe out there in the villages of Galilee, far away from Jerusalem and the temple, maybe people didn't really care that much. Maybe ordinary people didn't care that much about the law. And maybe, maybe that's the reason why the, the religious elites keep looking down on the ordinary people because they didn't care that much about the law. We don't know what the case was with this woman. All we know is that her situation was far from simple. It was complex. What we can be sure definitely is that this woman was a victim of a dysfunctional healthcare service. She consulted, according to the Bible, she consulted many physicians and many doctors which may suggest that at one point she was in a position where she could afford to consult more than one doctor. But instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now she was at the point where she didn't have much left. She had no money left, no prospects, and very little hope. But both of these stories are are about people with very little left other than their hope. They're about people who have reached the, the end of their rope. On the one hand, this respectful leader of the community, he is coming and he, he is falling at the feet of Jesus. The only hope that he has left is the faith that maybe this particular healer is actually genuine. Maybe the stories that he's heard about Jesus are actually true. 
He doesn't care about his honor anymore. He's not, he's not afraid to, to make a fool of, him, of himself. He's not afraid of, of being embarrassed. He, he throws himself on the floor and he begs, not once, repeatedly. He begs Jesus many times. On the other hand, the, the, this nameless woman shares this same kind of faith, same kind of hope, but she is actually overcome by shame. Unlike Jairus, she doesn't go and publicly beg Jesus repeatedly. She, is, she tries to sneak to come from the back. She, she tries hard to stay unnoticed. Her faith is the same as, as, as Jairus's, but, but her response to the shame and the embarrassment is different. Perhaps this woman has been, perhaps she had been humiliated one too many times. Perhaps she couldn't bear to be humiliated once again. Which is why when she finally decides to confess what she's done, what she had done when Jesus was looking around, she comes trembling, shaking with fear. And even though these two people may have had different histories and different backgrounds, they're both at the same place. They're both fallen. They're both lying at the feet of Jesus. Then both of these stories are about daughters, sick daughters. The daughter of Jairus was born around the same time when the woman started experiencing her bleeding problems 12 years ago. And both of these stories are about risen daughters. Jesus encourages this woman. He calls her his daughter and he encourages her to get up. To rise up and go and be healed of her disease. Similarly with Jairus' daughter, he encourages the little girl to get up and be raised back to life. Both stories are also about a touch that restores. The woman touched Jesus' clothes and was, re was restored to health. On the other hand, Jesus touched the little girl, took her by the hand and gave her her life back. Both of these stories are about an intimate encounter. In the midst of the big crowd and the commotion and all the pushing and, and shoving and the, 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 the noise of the crowd. In the midst of all that, Jesus and the unnamed woman have an intimate personal encounter where he calls her his daughter and tells her not to be afraid. And, and, and commends her for her immense faith and sends her away to be healed. Jesus and the little girl similarly in the midst of all the people mourning, they already started the funeral procession. He clears everyone. He, he only takes a few disciples and the parents and, and they have an intimate, personal moment. He talks to her. He actually speaks to her in her language. And the Gospel of Mark goes out of its way to show to us that these words were, were different. This address was, was personal, was important. So, so the Gospel leaves this, this, this phrase, little girl, get up, in the original Aramaic, even though the rest of the text is written in Greek. Because it was important to, to understand that this, this sentence was, was different. It was, it was personal. And both stories are also about noticing or, or, or seeing something that wasn't apparent to everyone. And uh, in, in the case of the unnamed woman, Jesus noticed that something had happened among, in the midst of all the touches that were happening... And the close proximity of the crowd around him, he noticed one touch. He noticed that this one touch was different. And, and, and the disciples were dismissive of this. They didn't, they didn't believe this. Similarly, when, when everyone saw only death in a dead little girl, 
Jesus noticed he, he saw life. And the people again were dismissive of this. They even laughed at him. But both of these stories are also about power. When the woman touched Jesus' clothes, we are told that she, she felt something happening in her. And Jesus felt that the power had gone out of him. And she felt in her body that the disease, the disease was gone. In the Greek, it's, it's beautiful. It actually says she knew in her body that the torment was gone. And Jesus knew in himself that the power had gone out. This encounter was about a transfer of power from Jesus to the woman. A giving away of power. A sharing of power. In Jairus' house, however, there was a demonstration of power. Jesus as the Lord over sickness and health, over life and death. But the result of this demonstration of power was the giving of life. The, the restoration of someone else. The, the raising up of the other. The empowering of the other. But these two stories, this, this sandwich, this, this sandwich actually raises some questions. Questions that... I don't think I'm able to answer, if I'm honest. First, there's a question about priority. Who has priority? Uh, who, who gets preferential treatment? If, if Jesus already decided that he's going to go with Jairus to, to raise his daughter, to heal at that point his daughter, why then did he allow this woman to stop this mission? Why did he allow her to, to, to interrupt him? What qualified this woman to have such priority? I'm sure she didn't pay double for the NHS. What qualified her to have priority? Why did everything have to stop just so she can be healed? Why did, why did someone have to die? Come on, why did someone have to die for someone else to be healed? And perhaps you may say, well, the point was that Jesus was, was trying to show that he does not ascribe priority based on, on class or, or social status. Maybe that's why he favored this socially and economically disadvantaged woman. Maybe that was what, was he, what he was trying to do. Or perhaps maybe the point was that he, he tried to show that you can't hurry God. That, that he comes when, when he, whenever he comes, he's on time. Maybe he tried to show that he's never late. He's always on time. Or maybe, maybe he was late on purpose in order for that demonstration of power to happen. In order so he can, he can show his might as a testimony to those who didn't believe and laughed at him. Or perhaps maybe the point is that he doesn't prioritize at all. In the end, everyone gets healed and everyone gets raised and life gets given back. But if that is the message that Jesus doesn't prioritize, but why does he only take Peter, James, and John with him? I'm sorry, but what, if there was no preferential treatment in Jesus, why were some of the disciples excluded from witnessing the raising of the little girl? If I were Jesus' disciple, I would really want to learn this particular skill. I would like to know how to raise dead people. So why were some people excluded? Also, if... Why, why, why was someone excluded from participating in this life-giving ministry? But f furthermore, why, why wasn't everyone healed? 
if there was such a big crowd and so many people were touching Jesus and, and gathering around him, I mean, I'm sure that the reason they were there in the first place is because they heard something about this Jesus. And, and there was either, either they themselves were in need of, of healing and help, or maybe they knew someone, they definitely had someone in their life who was in need of healing and health. Why just Jarius and the woman? What about everyone else? Or maybe, you might say, maybe it's because they didn't believe enough. Maybe, maybe the woman's touch actually worked because, because her faith was so strong. I've heard this. I've heard this in churches. Maybe, maybe, maybe if her faith were any weaker, nothing would have happened. Maybe that's why Jesus actually instructs Jairus on their way home when they heard the news that the daughter is dead. Maybe that's why Jesus instructs Jairus and says, do not be afraid, just believe. Maybe he's telling him, if, if you don't believe enough, the performance, the, the, the intervention won't work. Is this, is this really the case? Is this how it works? I don't know. I mean, Jesus... Does Jesus really have no say in the matter? Does Jesus really have no agency of his own? Is Jesus really conditioned by our, our faith or the lack thereof? Is Jesus contingent on us? Are we the ones in control over Jesus' healing and resurrecting power? I don't think I can answer all these questions. I can't even understand the British immigration system. And, and, but, but some people have actually offered quite bold answers to these questions. Some preachers will tell you, it's all about faith. Some preachers will tell you, if you pray long enough, if you believe strongly enough, if you claim it loud enough, if you declare it boldly enough, if you... If you speak it into existence well enough, you can perform any kind of healing. You can take away any kind of disease and illness. You can even raise from the dead. I can't tell you that. I, I don't know that to be true. I don't think that's how it works. If you believe that, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but, but I know that there are many people who believe this and were sorely disappointed. Many who, like the woman, saw many doctors and, and, and listened to many preachers. And rather than becoming better, grew worse. And on top of everything, they also felt tremendous guilt because of their perceived lack of faith. Or maybe they grew angry at God because they thought that God simply doesn't care about them, doesn't love them enough. Or maybe in his perfect plan, there's no space for them. Or maybe his plan is that they should suffer and then become angry. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. And, and the truth is, if we're honest, the gospel does, the gospels do record Jesus actually commissioning the disciples and telling them that they should go and heal and even raise the dead. I don't know what to tell you, but 
But rather, I, I want to talk about the NHS, the other NHS, because I know what we all can do for sure. I know that each and every one of us individually and all of us collectively can actually do something. So hear me out. The, the American psychiatrist and anthropologist, his name is Arthur Kleinman, Kleinman. He, he makes this distinction that I think is, is useful. He makes this distinction between two aspects of sickness. He talks about disease and illness. Disease, in his view, is the biological or the psychological or both malfunction, mal malfunctioning. It, it, it is what happens on the level of, of tissue and, and organs and hormones and, and cognition and perception. Illness, on the other hand, according to his view, is the personal and the social experience of that disease and the meanings that are attached to it. Illness, in his understanding, includes personal responses as well as social responses to the disease. Illness, he believes, is created by personal, social, and cultural reactions to the disease. In other words, to put it simply, you can have a disease but not consider yourself ill or perceive or be perceived by others as being ill or being treated as if you're ill. On the other hand, you can feel and experience and behave as if you are ill and you can be perceived and treated as if you're ill but have no disease in your body. And what follows this line of thinking is another distinction, that between curing and healing. Diseases are cured. Illnesses are healed. Curing occurs when the, the, the bodily, the somatic or psychological malfunctioning in the individual is successfully treated, fixed, removed, etc. But healing, on the other hand, occurs when the way the individual sees themselves is challenged. When, when their behavior is altered and when the way others perceive them and treat them is improved. I don't know if you can go on and, and, and cure diseases. Maybe you can. Or maybe we should leave that to God and to the NHS. But we can all heal illnesses. We can be the other NHS, not the National Health Service, but the other NHS, the Neighborly Healing Service, the other NHS, NHS. First of all, it's neighborly. When a lawyer asked Jesus the famous question, who is my neighbor? Jesus refused to even engage with this question, refused to even answer it. Because this question, it, it, it implies that there is someone who is not our neighbor. So if we identify who is, we also at the same time identify who isn't. Rather than answering in that way, Jesus actually tells a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to tell you that. That, that's, that. that requires a separate sermon. However, the point that Jesus makes in the end is, is, is to ask, ask back the, the, the lawyer a different question. Not who is the neighbor, but who of these people was a neighbor to the man in the ditch? The question is not who is our neighbor and who is not our neighbor. 
The question is, how can we be good neighbors? The other NHS is the neighborly healing service. And the answer to the question, how can we be good neighbors, is by loving everyone. By healing illnesses, by raising people out of their ditches, by making sure they're taken care of, by sharing our resources, by transferring our power, by giving up our privilege in order to help someone else. And not just in isolated single events, single acts of charity. I want to I share with you a quote, Martin Luther King Jr., when he spoke about this particular parable, this is what he said. He said, one day, one day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. We shouldn't just pick people out of the ditch. We should make sure that there's no ditch in the first place. The NHS, the other NHS, is neighborly. Then healing. Notice that when, when the woman touched Jesus, something happened in her. She knew in her body that something had changed. But something happened on the level of her body. And she felt it. Her disease was gone. But she was still full of shame. Full of fear, full of guilt. She was still carrying her illness. This thing that her society and her culture created. And attached it to her disease. And when Jesus sends her off, when he sends her away, he actually tells her to go in peace and, and says, leave the fear and the trembling behind and go and be healed. In other words, Jesus is saying, not in so many words, but Jesus is saying, you have been cured, but now go and be healed healed the other nhs the neighborly healing service is about this kind of healing and we can follow jesus and be healers in this way just like him by following his example by touching people by being in touch with people by staying connected i mean during this pandemic you might not be able to touch everyone and shake their hands but you can be in touch with everyone Furthermore, we can, we can start noticing people in the midst of all the urban noise and all the, all the, 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 the crowds and all the sights and the sounds and, and, and the long working hours and long shifts and even longer commutes. Among these masses of people, we can actually start noticing people and their needs. And then by being intimate vulnerable with them by meeting them where they are by speaking their language by entering their rooms their lives by learning about their worldviews by 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 honoring their culture by caring deeply about their story furthermore by insisting when everyone else insists otherwise by insisting on seeing what others don't seeing a different future seeing an alternative narrative seeing a life when uh, where others see death seeing hope where others see despair by insisting on this even when others are laughing at us or making fun of us the other nhs the neighborly healing service is about this kind of healing and then it's a service it's not a, a demonstration of power for its own sake this is my last point it's a service it's not just a demonstration of power for its own sake. 
it's, it's a service to people and to the community. But this, the point of this service to the people in the community is not, it's not, in, it's not an evangelizing tool. It's not, it's not a marketing campaign. It's not a PR stunt. This last bit, the service part, the reason we do this, the reason we serve people is not because we want them to come and, and we, we don't want to get them to do something for us. We're not trying to, we don't need them to change anything. We don't need them to change their beliefs. We don't need them to, to come and join our church. We don't need them to, to give us their money. Of course, I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. We would be very happy if any of these things happen. But that's not why we serve. That's not why the other NHS does what it does. We serve because that's what Jesus did. He said he came to serve and not to be served. And he called us to continue in his footsteps. We serve because that's what life in the kingdom looks like. And the most important point is that we don't have to make a big deal out of this. We don't, like, think about this. When, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter and she started walking about the house, people were, we, we read in the Bible that they were overcome with amazement. I love, I love the, the, the Greek there. The Greek says they were ecstatic with ecstasy. Right? Being overcome with them, ecstatic with ecstasy. And notice what Jesus does. I mean, I don't blame them. I would be ecstatic too if I saw someone coming up from the dead. But, but notice what Jesus does. He doesn't, say, doesn't tell them, go and tell everyone. He doesn't say, he doesn't say go and, and make a sermon out of this. He doesn't say, put this on your social media accounts. He doesn't say, call the media and make sure they write a report on this. He doesn't say, go and preach this on the squares. He doesn't say, go and shout it from the rooftops. He says, go and give the girl something to eat. Because that life-changing, that life-giving event, the resurrection has one purpose. And that's to resume normal life. Life is truly given back. The test that the life is truly given back is a shared meal. When healthy relationships are restored. When the ecstasy, the excitement of one moment is replaced by the routine, the constancy of sharing life together. We were hoping that, we were praying that today would look different. We were hoping that on the 21st, things would happen. This will look different. We were praying for this. We had faith. We believed in this. Yet here we are. Still few in numbers. Still distancing. Still being careful. Some of us still scared. But also still hopeful. I don't know when this pandemic will finally be over. Only God knows that. Only he can bring about that. Maybe the NHS as well. I don't know. But I'm more interested in the other NHS. The neighborly healing service. 
also known as the church. I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but maybe we'll have to live with this for a long time. I don't know this. Maybe, maybe this disease is here to stay. Maybe there isn't too much we can do about that. But perhaps, regardless of the disease, perhaps we can start healing the illness around it. Perhaps we can learn again how to share life together. And perhaps in that process, we might even raise someone from the dead. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com. Thank you.